This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Hunter Tenbrook is the founder and president of Waterwise Landscapes, a landscape design and build firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hunter sits on the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico and is actively involved in their annual Land and Water Summit, held each year in Albuquerque to promote sustainable and innovative practices in land and water management. For 25 years, Hunter has specialized in maintaining and using native New Mexican and other high desert drought-tolerant plants in his work. His goal is to implement water conservation techniques, texture, and color in the service of functional and pleasing environments that reflect the personalities of the gardeners he's working with and the climate of New Mexico. Land and water. No matter where we live or how differently our land and our water supplies and sources may look, our gardens and our nature love are wholly interdependent with these two much larger elemental forces. Over the course of his career, Hunter has worked in garden design, garden crafting, and educational advocacy to improve people's relationship to and understanding of their own land and water. On February 22nd and 23rd, Hunter will be part of the annual Land and Water Summit produced by the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico. This year, the theme is the ripple effect, storm water and our tree canopy. There's lessons here for all of us, no matter where we live. Hunter joins us today to share more from the studios of KUNM Public Radio in Albuquerque. Thank you for having me. Hunter, tell us a little bit about your work, Waterwise Landscapes, and the mission and ethos underlying your process, approach, and designs. Well, my wife and Barb and I started Waterwise Landscapes back in 1993. In fact, we're about uh, a month away from being our 25th anniversary. Um, and it basically at the time before then, um, Albuquerque had uh, had been promoting that we had uh, limitless water and a huge aquifer the size of Lake Superior, and um, and people were landscaping as if we had limitless water. And the, the landscapes were very generic, almost looking like someplace like Pennsylvania or Ohio or something like that, the lawns and and uh, high-water eastern-type turf. And we, at, right about that time, we uh, the USGS did a study on um, what our aquifer actually was and, and, and basically became evident that uh, our water levels were dropping quickly. So it was a combination of both uh, having a long-time love for native plants and um, and seeing that this was a much more sustainable way to, to move forward. We started WaterWise to be a much more regionally, um, regionally appropriate type of landscaping to try to create more a sense of place for where we are here in the high desert uh, of New Mexico. Were you born and raised in that area, Hunter? No, I um, had sort of a vagabond upbringing. My father was a teacher and was actually born in Texas and Houston, but moved to uh, the East Coast and basically moved slowly up the East Coast from South Carolina, um, a lot of time in Delaware, and, 
eventually went to school up in New England. So um, the West uh, was basically, after I finished school, I went West and um, ended up in New Mexico, did a roundabout trip. My wife went to grad school in University of Montana, and then we ended up working uh, for the Park Service. I worked at Bryce Canyon National Park, which is, I think, where I really became interested in uh, native plants of the Southwest. And then we um, eventually decided um, couldn't get on full-time with the Park Service, moved to Albuquerque because we had some friends there, and it just seemed like a place that uh, kind of met our needs. Yeah. Based on that well-traveled youth and young adulthood and ending up in a place that Bryce Canyon, which if listeners have been there know, it's an incredibly beautiful and compelling landscape of the the West and Southwest. What were your earliest influences along the way that led you to becoming a plants person? And it, it sounds to me, so add this in if, if that's um, applicable, as both you and your wife are very uh, – passionate and dedicated to this sustainable plant and native plant loving work? Well, um, my personal influence is um, my, my mother was an avid gardener and, and as well as an artist. I think that influenced my design and aesthetics quite a bit. And I helped out there uh, you know, around the yard growing up as a kid. Also, uh, my parents had a cabin uh, up at Lake Champlain on the New York side in, near the Adirondacks. And um, I was early on introduced to hiking. I think my first hike, I was about three years old. And hiking was has always been a huge and still is a huge part of my life. Um, and I think um, in the beginning, I wasn't... <laughs> paying very much attention to the specific plants. Um, it was more just being out there and uh, out in the, in the wilderness. Um, but gradually, you know, I think it sort of beca- I became more interested in the, the, the whole ecosystem and how things worked and how all the, inter- the plants and, and ge- geology and weather and everything uh, interacted. So those were the early influences. I think also, as I said, at Bryce Canyon, I had a, a fellow hiker who had worked for the Forest Service and was a naturalist, and he started to actually teach me a lot of the, the specific plants native to the Southwest. Um, when I got to New Mexico, I worked for a large company here in town, and my wife bought me a book by Judith Phillips, who's a local uh, writer, uh, garden writer, and a landscape designer, and I'd say that probably had the biggest influence on on where I am today. Um, She's still active, and actually we install a number of her designs as well as mine. Um, But um, she definitely takes an ecological approach to to landscaping. You know, really uh, did a lot of studying as to, you know, the specific ecology of of the the Southwest and and the area around Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Now, you've used a couple of terms that I would love to explore a little bit more, and I think it gets to that relationship between 
plants, appropriate plants, native plants, and geology, and the way they are very interdependent. And sometimes that's clear to gardeners, and sometimes it's not. And But the more clear it is, the better we're able to work and love the environments that we're in, I think. And you've talked about the aquifer in your area and evaluation and awareness of its levels. And you've talked about living in the high desert. Describe the climate and geology of your conditions there, Hunter. Well, basically, most of Albuquerque, I would say, is a, is a high desert climate, um, uh, though we have a lot of variability, and, uh, and I can go into that in a second. But um, basically, if you look at the, the undisturbed lands, which are still some around uh, Albuquerque close by, it's basically a native grass, high desert um, area with some small shrubs and stuff. There are really very few trees until you get close to the mountain. Now, when you say high desert, give us specifics on that. What is a high desert? Well, basically, uh, I mean, our annual rainfall here is averages about eight and a half inches, but there's a lot of variability uh, between that. So, I mean, basically, there really aren't um, a lot of trees. Um, there's some shrubs, sub-shrubs, a lot of grasses, um, forbs, that kind of thing growing. If you go on cacti, um, that kind of thing growing. If you go to the undisturbed areas around here, but um, also we are right at the base of uh, uh, the Sandia Mountains, which are um, basically uh, granite uplifted mountains are 10,600 plus feet uh, at the top. As you get up higher in uh, basically in the southwest, um, the amount of rainfall drastically affects the vegetation that you have. So mm-hmm. as you get up to high elevations, you get up into large, large conifer trees and riparian, uh, mountain riparian areas, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so it's a much different, it's a lot cooler. It gets uh, the um, sand, top of the Sandias get over 35 inches of rain a year average. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a riparian area where the Rio Grande runs uh, through the middle of Albuquerque. It starts up in Colorado and runs down into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it runs along a rift. Um, and so we have quite a bit of variation here in soils. Uh, you also have some volcanic, small volcanoes, uh, inactive volcanoes on the west side of Albuquerque. So we have um, uh, the west side is sand and and uh, volcanic rock, um, some caliche. The, the uh, valley is, you know, uh, more typical riparian soils with mixtures of clay and um, silt and um, some some um, organic matter in there. Uh, as you get up in towards the mountain, you get more uh, decomposed granite soil, which is uh, most of our soils are pretty much mineral soils. There's not a lot of organic matter. And our soils are also very, and our water are also very alkaline, which is typical of, of more desert-like uh, climbs. And what is the elevation of Albuquerque? And, and do you know what the elevation range is for, you know, an environment that qualifies as high desert? I would say probably around 4,000 feet gets into the mm-hmm. high desert range. We're, uh, the lowest elevations in Albuquerque are just below 5,000 feet, 
Uh, the highest elevations within the city limits are, oh, I think, over 6,500 feet. And then, of course, you have the uh, the mountain right there. That's um, There's a wilderness area that basically uh, runs right up to the borders of, of Albuquerque. See? So there's quite a bit of variation in soils and in temperatures and in rainfall as well. As you get close to the mountain, you tend to get a lot more moisture and there's quite a bit of vari- variation just within the, the city limits here. And you mentioned this, you know, an average rainfall of eight and a half inches a year, which if anybody is familiar with their own average rainfall, that is very little precipitation throughout the year. Even in the range of its variability, it is a dry, arid environment. You described a little bit the grasslands with shrubs what are the what is what does that look like what are what are the predominant grasses in that area and the predominant shrubs in that high desert plateau well there there actually are um, an amazingly diverse number of uh, or of uh, native grasses here I mean mm-hmm. blue grama I would say is one of the predominant ones little blue stem there's sand drop seed there there really are there's probably about i mean that's it's a pretty varied there's there's probably easily 30 or 40 species of native grasses in in mm-hmm. in the in this general area but i'd say blue grama is probably the most most uh, dominant and there's indian rice grass as well well uh, most of the grasses here are what are called warm season grasses which uh, they basically grow when the nights are over a certain, uh, you know, the cold temperatures are over a certain amount of temperature, um, and they don't germinate unless the temperatures are, are reasonably warm in the mornings. Uh, they also go, they go dormant during the winter, and they'll stay dormant also during extreme periods of drought. They can just sit there mm-hmm. um, semi-dormant for quite a long time. And uh, generally, our climate is, um, I call it a monsoon uh, climate, where we basically get our, our most of our moisture in the summer, uh, usually July, August, September. Um, the um, Basically, the temperatures get warm, and then uh, moisture comes in, and um, it, in the afternoons, the clouds build up. And then you have scattered thunder showers in the afternoon, but mm-hmm. but it varies quite a bit. We had um, we've had some times. We just finished a period with 97 days without any precipitation in the city, mm-hmm. which is a quite a long time even for here. One of the things that's striking to me is it does seem so bare, and the uh, especially if you travel there in you know a, a dormant drought period in the summer or in the winter, you you move across the landscape and it seems very, very bare. But the incredible diversity in the plant life that does thrive there is always amazing to me. And it is a very specifically beautiful landscape with its blue-green low grasses and then the, the deep green of the the junipers and the pinyon pines and cedars. And then as you, you know, move higher, the wildflowers and the cacti, it's it's an incredibly diverse uh, and resilient plant group that makes their home there. 
Yeah, I mean, plants have to be uh, very adaptable. We get, um, you know, we are zone 7B. We do get quite, you know, fairly cold weather here. We had a, uh, a rather extreme cold event here about seven years ago where it was uh, between negative 10, negative 15 here. Um, but it's not unusual for us to get into the low teens uh, mm-hmm. in the in the morning. So they have to be able to withstand quite a bit of cold. Um you know, we're not as hot as Phoenix or Tucson, where they get hundreds all the time. And hundreds are relatively rare, although we had, um, you know, the, with climate change, things have gotten um, a, the regular patterns as a, with a lot of places seem to have uh, <laughs> disappeared. And, and it's it's sort of different every year now. But we had, mm-hmm. um, we had I think, over 20 days of over 100-degree weather in July in, in 2016. Wow. Um, which is very unusual for us. So, but so the plants do have to be very adaptable, and you know we've had had a lot of conversations about, um, you know, when there's been a lot of forest fires because one of the things about this area is that a lot of the water comes from snow melt, and um, so the snowpack is extremely important. And uh, our snowpack last year was decent. This year we are, uh, well, I've got a little bit the last few weeks, but um, as of January, first week in January, we were at 6% snowpack. Mm. So uh, it's really kind of a crucial um, element in, in um, you know, what kind of stream flow we have and as far as recharge on the aquifers here. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Hunter Tenbrook, landscape designer in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His company name, Waterwise Landscapes, gets to the heart of his work and to the heart of the upcoming annual Land and Water Summit being held by the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico in Albuquerque, February 22nd and 23rd. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer checking in with you to say hi and as always to say thank you for being here with me in these conversations. I've had some really nice feedback from you all in these past few weeks about these new break messages where I speak directly to you and I can say from my side it makes me really happy also. And it opens up the work to a more organic back and forth with you the listeners. Sometimes I have so much more I want to say and share with you, like upcoming events and announcements, like press notices about Cultivating Place and events I'll be taking part in, or the fact that Cultivating Place has just celebrated its second birthday, a fact of which I'm very proud. And my producer, the talented and inspirational Sarah Bohannon, is likewise proud. It takes a lot of work to put together the program weekly, and if the guests and conversations and the love of gardening and its meaning in this world didn't fill me up on all levels, it might not be worth it. But they do, and it is. And messages from you all, listeners from all over the world, make it doubly worth it. Just this past week, I had such a moving email from Carol Ann Hook in Minnesota. She wrote, I'm in Minnesota watching the snow fall and dreaming of getting back into the garden, although only in due time, because as she said, she fully understands the ecological and psychological importance of winter. She also loves frogs and other amphibians. She ended the note with, 
please continue to make these programs. They're directly impacting my choices and thinking. Thank you, Carol Ann. I'll tell you what, I'm right there with you. These conversations impact my own choices and thinking every single week. If you'd like more information on events, random but seasonal garden thoughts and announcements about cultivating place, and past and future episodes, make sure to sign up for the monthly newsletter. I just sent one out and it has some fun announcements. And if you have something you'd like to share with me, send me an email through cultivatingplace.com or comment on Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook so I can hear what you're up to also. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations about these things we love and that connect us all. Together, we gardeners and nature lovers, we make a difference in the world for the better. And now back to our conversation with Hunter, sharing more about his own plant journey and the development of his personal land and water ethic. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Hunter Tenbrook of Waterwise Landscapes in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hunter's work is informed by his and his wife's deep love for the land and flora of the American Southwest, which they came to love in their early adulthoods. For the past 25 years, they've worked to inspire and educate other garden and nature lovers to garden and work with this unique and beautiful landscape and climate as well. While it might look quite spare at first, the fact is that the plant diversity of the American Southwest is quite rich. Hunter notes that around Albuquerque itself, there are on the order of 30 to 40 species of native grasses alone. We're back to hear more. Welcome. 25 years ago, like much of the West, I would say, Albuquerque has home gardens and and, and business landscapes that do not reflect at all the landscape in which they are sitting. And the reality about the aquifer and its overall long-term quantity or, or health is starting to be looked at more closely and you start water-wise landscapes. Talk about some of the landscape designs and installations you do and how you educate just at that level, your your own individual interactions with people, um, how you educate and design for the site to, to demonstrate that it is very possible to have a beautiful, regionally appropriate landscape there that doesn't have to look like Pennsylvania. Well, um Obviously, coming from a, a family of artists and things, I'm a visual, visually oriented person, and I, I try to take that to my clients. Um, I uh, become more and more of a photographer over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've contributed to a few books here and there, and I I find that um, that showing pictures of th- of different landscapes, different plants, really is 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 the way to really grab people's attention, um, you know, not try not to oversell what things are and what, they're, what they aren't, but um, just the visual impact of, of um, what, what things can be here. And, and, and we're, it, we're very unique here. The look from here in Albuquerque is quite different from the look in, in Santa Fe, which is only an hour's drive away or less. 
but they're at 7,000 feet or from Phoenix or from Tucson. We have a unique uh, set of circumstances with our how much moisture our soils and um, um, some seasonal changes and, and the plant, the native plant palette that's here. So um, we, we try to, you know, kind of take some of the best of what's here. We do enhance things with some other adapted plants from other places as long as they're not uh, invasives. Um, um, we also, one of the things I've always tried to do is to, is to help create habitat um, in the garden, which I think a lot, a lot of my clients are very uh, into. So um, um, trying to um, plant for pollinators, um, uh, hummingbirds and, and butterflies and um, bee, all different bees and na- native bees. Um, and I think that's a big part of some of the interest uh, of, of why people choose me and, and sort of the, the kind of designs that I do. I also do try, and Albuquerque is a place that has over 300 um, days of sunshine a year, mm-hmm. and it is a place that um, basically really, um, it, it's a great place to create outdoor rooms, and um, that's another thing I try to do. I try to get people to actually spend time outside and create um, outdoor living spaces um, and, and we can do that at, uh, in a good part of the year, even in the winter when it's cool, it warms up in the afternoon. Um, even when it's hot in the summer, the um, dry air the, doesn't hold the heat long. And it's very pleasant in the late afternoon and evening to sit outside. So mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> both um, as, as a place to live and, um, and something visually to look at, it's, um, that's, that's a big part of the designs. I also did some permaculture design classes back in uh, design courses back in the um, oh about 25 years ago, and uh, so I also try to incorporate obviously water harvesting and uh, um, we also I try to include some edibles in there as well. The med- a lot of the Mediterranean herbs do well here as the more cold hardy ones, and. Um, you know, there are uh, quite a few options in, in edibles here as well. So um, I try to make it a functional landscape, um, not just something to look at uh, as you drive mm-hmm. by or walk by. And so if you had to name, you know, five flowering perennials that you are your sort of go-to plants, what would those be? Um, um, I'd say some of the ones I use quite a bit, um, um, the, uh, one, uh, uh, Salvia camadioides, uh, Mexican blue sage is a nice one. It's, um, kind of a nice, um, native alternative to, to lavenders. It's a salvia, not unlike salvia gregii or cherry sage, which is another one that we do use. Um, but it has a deep blue f- color that's really kind of different from um, a lot of other plants. Um, there's, uh, I also use a, a plant, hummingbird trumpet flower, Zoschneria epilobum, which is a, a really excellent plant for, for the hot summers here. It'll bloom right through the, the three or four hottest months of the summer, uh, and the hummingbirds absolutely love it. Um, mm-hmm. Um, another plant that I use, it's not a native, but 
is a um, it's a it's a ground cover. It's a Greek germander, and it's a mm-hmm. it's a low evergreen ground cover. Um, that's it's another Mediterranean plant, but it's really uh, it does well with the heat, um, but it looks nice through the winter here. Um, since we do we do have seasons here, I try to mix in the evergreen plants with the um, interesting uh, deciduous plants. Mm-hmm. Some other uh, perennials, um, things like uh, desert mule's ear, which is basically a um, um, a perennial sunflower. Um, that that's another sort of summer bloomer. Um, a lot of the um, Augustakis, um, mm-hmm. uh, licorice mint, um, bubblegum mint, um, Augustakiana, and uh, rupestris. Um, mm-hmm. They're great for 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 the uh, fragrance and also attract the the hummingbirds as well. Um, so I mean, those are some of the main ones. But uh, I try to I try to mix it up a bit, um, and it does matter which part of town you're in. Mm-hmm. Some of the plants uh, won't grow in heavy clays, uh, and some would like the sand more, some like that decomposed granite more. So I actually have sort of, sort of several different palettes of plants depending on what part of town I'm in. Yeah. And what about shrubs? What shrubs do you like to incorporate? What do well in the garden environment there? Um, well, there's a couple of the ones that, you know, a lot of people these days don't like to do a whole lot of maintenance. So I, sometimes I'll try to pick some plants that keep a relatively a relatively compact form without, um, you know, taking a lot of uh, maintenance and pruning to keep them um, that way. So uh, Erica Maria um, uh, latticefolia, the um, turpentine bush, is basically mm-hmm. the um, small, well, I call it the small, well-behaved cousin of the chamisa or the rabbit brush. It's about a, it's an evergreen plant, about two feet tall, four feet wide, gets beautiful yellow flowers in the fall, and uh, and it's just, it's very low water, very low maintenance. Um, I've been using the, the, the Mojave sage, the salvia uh, pacophylla, um, <clears throat> gives you some evergreen and it also gives you flowering and also attracts a lot of the pollinators. Um, um, use some of the, uh, Western sand cherries, especially in the sandier soils. It's nice, uh, changing interest through the year. It's a short plant. It's about, oh, about two feet tall. Some that are even shorter. Um, it gives you white flowers in the spring. It gives you little sour cherries that the birds like in the summer. And then you get a really beautiful fall foliage, uh, 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 orange type, orange to red fall foliage um, mm-hmm. in the fall. So that those are some of the some of the go-to's. Um, dwarf lead plant um, is another amorpha um, yeah. that. Uh, I sort of use as a an alternative to a, the widely used Russian sage. Russian sage just gets kind of invasive here. Dwarf lead plant is is a you know stays more contained, but gives you a nice color. And you, yeah, and it's a you, beautiful yeah, native. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in these twenty five years, Hunter, have you found the public perception of what? was originally called, or maybe not originally, but it, be, it came to be called Xeriscape, and 
Um, that is still a term that is used in, in some areas in more so than in, in others. And I think for a long time, it fought a perception that that meant sort of lava, rock, and a cactus. How have you found the public embrace and acceptance and um, but really embrace of this concept? Um, how has it come along in 25 years from your seat? Uh, I think it's come quite a ways. Um, you know, there's always more education that can happen. But um, when I when I started the business, uh, a lot of people kind of gave me funny looks. What are you What are you doing? You're never going to be able to make a living doing that. And um, um, there were a few people interested in in more native type plants. And and the quite frankly, the <clears throat> the palette of of plants available at the nurseries was still pretty limited at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think over time, a lot of education, um, we have a, an active uh, Xeriscape rebate program here in Albuquerque and the local uh, Rio Rancho is, I believe is, is starting a new one as well where people are get paid to take out their high water turf, but, um, and put in new plants, but they have to have a certain percentage of, plant coverage and, and the plants need to be relatively low, low water plants. Mm -hmm. I, I think that along with a lot of education things and the fact that um, just more and more people have done um, nice, nice xeriscapes, that um, it's one of those things that, you know, we've done a lot of projects where we, we landscape one house on the street and then you know, within five or six years, we've done four or five um, in within a couple blocks. Um, mm -hmm. And people start talking, they walk around, and they see something that they like. Um, I think, you know, the nurseries and, and Albuquerque's done a pretty good job of, of, of promoting that. And uh, obviously, the, the conference that I work with um, also pushes that, that as well. I, I, I think it's changed a lot over time. Um, there were certainly a lot of bad examples of Xeriscape, and um, we're always trying to <laughs> counteract that the best we can. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to the Land and Water Summit in February. Uh, I think it's the 22nd and 23rd. The third annual Land and Water Summit is being held there in Albuquerque? Well, um, I think it's the third, I'm sorry, Mary, it's the third or fourth year that that's what we've changed the name to. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, the, the conference started back in the late 80s um, as a, a small Xeriscape conference, um, 1987. Um, the first one I went to was 89, and then um, in 93, I became part of the, the committee that, the Xeriscape Council that puts the conference on. It, it sort of slowly morphed um, from, um, you know, a basically a small landscape conference to dealing with much larger issues, uh, water and uh, watershed issues. And so certainly landscape is part of that, but um, we really are trying to look at things from a much more holistic way and bring in much more, you know, a greater variety of, of people to the table um, with the conference that we have now. Um, it's, it's got a, a really varied group of people from, um, we have engineers, water utilities, landscape architects, architects, flood control people, ranchers, farmers, municipalities, 
landscapers, homeowners, planners, naturalists. So we, we try to get a wide group of people there to, um, you know, we have a we have a, a precious resource here in the desert, and and if we don't work together, um, we will all lose out. Yeah. And one of the things, so this year, the theme this year is the ripple effect, and there's a particular focus on the tree canopy and stormwater and the way these are cared for, used, and understood. Is there a different theme every year? Yes, we, we definitely, we, uh, I mean, they're, they're all related, but um, mm-hmm. we do kind of concentrate in different areas each year. Um, you know, some of the, one of the bad uh, parts about about some of the poor xeriscapes that happened uh, is that people just, they had trees and they um, they didn't take into account that they needed to um, to keep watering their trees. Um, maybe they changed the way that they water them. Um, and because, uh, you know, if you don't see trees growing in Albuquerque unless you're down in either right by the mountain or down by the river. And so trees are not a natural occurrence here. But stormwater and ru- and water runoff is a is a, an underused natural resource. We're tr- I'm trying to get more people to use, both in public and private, and we're trying to revitalize our our uh, our tree canopy here. And it you know there's things like you can do curb cuts in parking lots so that the water runs into the the lower area where the trees are and so that every time we do get rain they can take advantage of the extra rain we're trying to get people to use permeable paving and other green infrastructure kinds of ways to to bring water into the trees and have the trees for their part not only they improve the standard of life here giving us shade habitat and making life a lot more pleasant, but trees can also act to help reduce erosion and stormwater velocity and pollutants. So it's it's sort of a win-win kind of deal there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Hunter Tenbrook of Waterwise Landscapes in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where for 25 years he's helped to inspire and educate others about the beauty and value to be found in gardening with your climate. In these 25 years, he's happy to note that there's been a remarkable change in public perception and embrace of native plant, climate-adapted habitat gardening. Permaculture techniques such as rainwater harvesting and designing gardens for taking advantage of rainwater when it does rain are no longer new or extraordinary elements of home gardens and public landscapes. But as we know, there's always room for improvement and plenty more gardeners and landowners to inspire. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Jennifer here. A few of the things that have me jotting down notes through this conversation with Hunter is his clear understanding about the relationship between his native landscape and water sources and his work in his own gardens and those gardens he helps to create. You can see this really vividly in his photography as well as through this conversation. Are you aware of the aquifer that feeds your home and garden? Of the larger watershed that feeds that aquifer as well as your home and garden? the geologic history and rock and soil composition of your area. Sometimes these are wider concepts that get lost in the details of our day-to-day. 
they especially might get lost in the more urban of our environments. But these are foundational things to our climates and the quality of our lives with plants. For me, this conversation is not unlike when I travel by plane and you get up high enough that you can see the whole lay of your land in overview. It's such an eye-opening, revealing experience, one that directly relates to why the plants that thrive in your garden thrive there and why the plants that struggle there struggle. Interesting expanded awareness. So here's my challenge to you this week. If you don't already know it, find out the name of your primary watershed and aquifer. Let me know the answers by email or on this week's episode post on Instagram or Facebook, making sure to note if you already knew this information or not. And no worries if you didn't, because as we all know, there is always more to learn. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Now back to our conversation with Hunter. This is Cultivating Place conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to continue our conversation with Hunter Tenbrook of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he sits on the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico. The council's mission is to educate the public about resource conservation and best practices for improving local landscapes. The primary project of the council is the annual Land and Water Summit, focusing on water, people, and landscapes. Every spring, the Council brings globally recognized experts and local speakers together for this two-day conference. This year, the conference takes place February 22nd and 23rd. We're back to hear more. Welcome. We have had the same issues here in California after our long period of drought. And uh, the incentive programs, you know, really encouraged suburban homeowners to uh, rethink their irrigation and rethink their turf. And in exactly the same cause and effect that you are describing, they didn't think about their mature trees, sort of assuming that the mature trees had um, bountiful enough root systems that they would be okay. But in fact, we lost a lot of trees as a result, native and cultivated non-native trees in our urban areas. And um, it's it's clearly none of these issues that you are talking about at the Land and Water Summit in Albuquerque are unique to Albuquerque. They are um, issues that we as a as a country of gardeners and naturalists need to um, continue to keep ourselves educated on and aware of. And it's interesting to look at your speakers coming in for this conference. You have you know, leaders coming from San Antonio, from Las Vegas, from, um, there was another one, from Tucson. And and again, it's not even just the West or the Southwest where drought is a part of our life. It's part of our seasonal and, you know, multi-year cycles, not necessarily unusual or just the result of climate change, but part of our normal cycle as well. And But even in the East, this idea that our gardens and our urban landscapes are interdependent on our climate and our geology and our watersheds, it, you would think that we all understood it after this, you know, last 25 years, but it's amazing to me how many people are still coming on board and how many more we still have to get on board. Well, you know, one thing I 
find kind of interesting having a discussion with a friend uh, at a conference the other day, and, and um, we talked about how, in some ways, Albuquerque and New Mexico being um, being kind of a rural outlier state, um, we've had to be a little more independent and uh, self-sufficient, and I think people are less prone to two more um, national ideas about landscape and stuff now um, that we have to deal with the circumstances that we have. I mean, Albuquerque, in the last 25 years, we've cut our water consumption, per capita water consumption, 40%, um, which is no small um, accomplishment. Certainly there's mm-hmm. more, more, That's room, impressive. more room to be done. And and we're not the only ones in the West that have done that. I, I, I look to um, you know Tucson, uh, Santa Fe have done um, really great things, and and we've tried to learn from each other. We've had a number of speakers from Tucson over the years. They've done some some really wonderful stuff. Um, but I, th- I think it's uh, uh, the lessons that could be learned everywhere. That you know water is precious and and water is life and. Um, and we need to take care of it, whether it, it's seemingly plentiful or not. Having it in, in, in a form you can use it and, and being able to use it efficiently is always important. And I think, um, as I said, being sort of a poor outlier state sometimes has its advantages, whereas um, we have no other choice. Um, and, um, and we recognize that we're not the same as everybody else. Um, but I think that's, you know, when it gets down to it, Every place is different, and everybody has to really learn the, the sense of place of where they are and um, and the uniqueness of the place that they're from. There's common threads, but um, as I said, every place is different. And, and I think Albuquerque is a little more aware now, especially after the 25 years, that we do live in a high desert, and um, we can't just take 20-minute showers and and throw the sprinklers on anytime we want. Mm-hmm. I follow you on Instagram specifically is where you and I interact. And from your um, photos and stories, it's clear you are, as you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, a very avid and active um, hiker around not just your area, but just an avid hiker. And especially in your area, your your photographs certainly demonstrate and communicate a love of your place. Beyond beyond that, why is this work important to you and your wife? And because you work really, you work really hard at it. And um, what are the, the longer impacts and cultural significance this has for you? Well, uh, you know, New Mexico is a really unique place. Um, you know, we have uh, a large Native American population, a large Hispanic population. We have um, culture going back. The Native, um, the Taos Pueblo has been continuously lived in since 1200 A.D. We're actually an older uh, place than almost anywhere in the North America um, that's been continually lived in. And so we have a different culture here. The early uh, Hispanic culture was in the, using the acequias or the uh, irrigation ditches. Um, uh, there's a long history of living on the land 
And, uh, you know, some of these traditions are, you know, we try to keep going to this day. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of pushback on the farmers for using a lot of water, but the, uh, the acequias, the, the irrigation ditches that run around through the valleys um, in a lot of the, the, along the Rio Grande provide um, a lot of different, they, they provide water, obviously, for farming, they provide uh, wildlife corridors for uh, all kinds of um, birds, um, mammals, all kinds of creatures. And um, there are also recreation uh, areas. Um, I ride my bike down along the Rio Grande every week on a, a bike system down there. I see bald eagles and all this right in the middle of the city. Um, so it's it's really um, it's a, it's really unique, I think. Um, you know, you can get out of uh, Albuquerque quickly into all different kinds of ecosystems. But I, I, I want to preserve that. I want to have, uh, I want to be able to, to see the bald eagles. I want to have a place that is still uh, livable for, for um, future generations here. Um, it's, you know, um, you know, one of our, our topics is trees. And, um, you know, if you plant a tree, you almost ha have to be an optimist because you're never going to see that tree at its maturity. So mm. um, <laughs> you're planting that for, for people in the future. And, and, I, and other people did that for me, and I hope that I can do that for someone else. Is there anything else you would like to share, Hunter? I think the, the overall point I'd want to make is, you know, I think we all really need to, uh, you know, and, and I, you do such a great job of that, is we all need to really be aware of where we are, uh, you know, where we are on the planet, um, the uniqueness of where we are, and, and how we need to live within the framework of the place that we live, um, both culturally, uh, ecologically. Um, and, um, you know, New Mexico is a beautiful place, um, and I, you know I love it here. It's it's uh, provides um, uh, it provides a living. It provides a place to go explore. Um, you know we can, unlike you know places like in Colorado where you go hiking and you see hundreds thousands of people sometime on a hike. Usually um, it's very easy to go off and 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 be one with. <laughs> With uh, the wilderness here, it's easy to get off and, and, and see your own place there. And, and I try to take a, a cue from, from nature here and on my designs, um, and it's, there's a lot of great things to, to draw from here. We really uh, would like to get you know, more people, uh, more opinions. One thing that I didn't go into there, and I probably should have, is uh, the last two year, last year and this year, we have a, a, a guy named Jeff Goebel, who's a founder of About Listening mm -hmm. uh, Consensus Building. And it, we do basically for three breakout sessions at the conference where every, you break down into groups where you're in groups of varied people within each group, and everybody has a say, and everyone has to listen. And and um, it's, a, it's a good way to find the collective wisdom of the group, and mm. there's a lot of it there. I think that's a really important um, element of the conference, and 
the idea of bringing different stakeholders around water together is no easy task in the West. And water is life, but it's also contentious uh, among the different stakeholders. And I think it's one of the legacies we we live with. um, And hopefully, maybe we can change it going forward. I think, uh, you know, I think it's amazing how uh, when circumstances get rougher, uh, people tend to listen a little bit better. So uh, mm-hmm. the more so the more adverse things are, I think it, the opportunity is, is greater uh, to bring people together because um, the alternatives are so bad if you don't. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Hunter. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I appreciate the, the your show. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful resource. Hunter Tenbrook is the founder and president of Waterwise Landscapes, a landscape design and build firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He sits on the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico and is actively involved in their annual Land and Water Summit, held each year in Albuquerque to promote sustainable and innovative practices in land and water management. Water is life, and when it comes down to it, we are all stakeholders at this table. It's good to note that in the makeup of people involved in the upcoming conference, the Xeriscape Council of New Mexico has included landscape professionals involved in design, construction, and management, homeowners, farmers, artists, business people, teachers, hydrologists, ranchers, climatologists, wildlife advocates, and policymakers to find equitable ways to share the state's water. Council members are experts on water conservation, promoting the use of native and arid adapted plants, rainwater harvesting, utilizing low-impact recycled building materials, and landscaping irrigation methods. The organization's primary goal is to educate. To find out more about registering for the conference, go to landandwatersummit.org. Hunter joined us today from the studios of KUNM Public Radio in Albuquerque. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. To see Hunter's beautiful photos illustrating his work, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode of Cultivating Place. Even better, join in the conversations by checking in with Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to hear about your land and water realities and concerns. Best of all, if these conversations inspire you, share them with others, because how and why we cultivate our places matters to us all. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is also made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.